We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We're starting Ephesians 5, the first 21 verses. Last September, actually not last September, this September, about a month ago, there was a student at the University of Indiana by the name of Lucas Caver. Now, it's possible it's pronounced Caver, but for the sake of this illustration, I'm going to pronounce it Caver, C-A-V-A-R. And the reason is because this is a story about the caving club at uh, Indiana University. This was in the New York Times. This student, Lucas Caver, he was 19 years old, had never been caving or spelunking, as they say before. Uh, One of the big reasons I'm telling this story is because I've never used the word spelunking in a sermon, and I get to this morning. Uh, Lucas Caver joined the caving club this fall, and uh, in September, September 17th, which was a Sunday, they went out on their first spelunking trip. They went to a nearby cave called Sullivan's Cave, and I don't know how many students there were, but they divided up into two different groups and uh, explored two different parts of the cave. And uh, about halfway through the spelunking trip, Lucas Caver decided that he didn't like the portion of the cave they were exploring because it was a portion of the cave called the Backbreaker, and that is what it sounds like. It was a narrow, low tunnel where you had to bend over and walk through. And so Lucas decided he was going to leave his group and go find the other group and catch up with them. Now, they had a buddy system going, but for some reason, his buddy didn't object to him wandering off in the dark in a cave. And uh, as you can imagine, he never found the other group. He got lost. And so he made his way back to the entrance of the cave. But by the time he got there, the rest of the group had already gotten in the buses and left. And they had closed the gate at the front of the cave and locked it so that Lucas Caver was stuck alone in the dark in this cave. They didn't realize they'd left him there for two and a half days. When they, and I don't know how that happened. His buddy was a very, very bad buddy. <laughs> Nobody noticed he was missing for two and a half days. And so this article in the New York Times says what was supposed to be a fun adventure turned into a hellish 58 hours for Mr. Caver. He was so thirsty, he licked the moisture off the walls He began to think, should I eat the crickets on the floors just for some protein? He was afraid he was going to die. He fell asleep near the mouth of the cave on Tuesday, and it was late Tuesday night that the rescuers arrived. And what he said is what woke him up were the floodlights of the rescuers pouring into the mouth of that cave. And he said, it took me a moment to figure out where I was, to remember where I was. And I jumped up and he said, the rest was a blur. I just ran toward the light. I ran out of the dark into the light. And uh, he said, I don't plan to really go caving for a while. Again, the very last line of this article says, I think I just need to take it easy for a while. And and I got to be honest, I can't blame him. Uh, I might quit that club after that experience. Because I think I don't want to go back into the darkness of a cave once I have been rescued by the light. Right, but I love the imagery of being in this dark place, certain you're going to die, and then being rescued, right? Running to the light. The reason that I share that is because that imagery finds its way into the New Testament over and over and over again, and it's going to weave its way through Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, that as believers in Jesus Christ, who we were before we knew Jesus was we were people in the dark. We were people who were slaves. We were people headed to death because of our sin. We were headed to hell. 
separated from God, unable to see the light of God, unable to approach God, and in a very desperate situation, thirsty and hungry for eternal life, but unable to get to it. And then through the death and resurrection of Jesus, what God has done is he shined the light into the darkness. And he said, come on, come out of the dark, come into the light. And what Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 5 then is, if you have gone from the darkness into the light, it makes no sense for you then to walk back into the darkness. Right? Once you've been rescued from the darkness and moved into the light, you have gone from death to life. You now know Jesus Christ. You have been forgiven of your sin. You look forward to resurrection and eternal life. Paul's going to say, why then would you go back and walk around in the darkness of immorality? And particularly in this passage, he's going to talk about sexual immorality. He's going to talk about impurity. He's going to talk about covetousness and greed, the sins of the flesh. He says, why would you go back and walk in that filth again? You've been saved. You've been set free from that. So because you're a child of the light, walk in the light. What Ephesians 5 is going to call us to come to terms with is this, that we're not saved by what we do, right? You're not saved by doing the right thing, staying away from adultery or drunkenness or bad thoughts. That's not how you receive eternal life. You receive eternal life by the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. But because you have eternal life, Paul's going to say the Spirit of God lives within you and is now calling you to walk consistently with what God has done in your life, to look at Jesus and say, what is Jesus? like. And because I am a child of God through Jesus, I want to walk like Jesus. I want to love people like Jesus. I want to have the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. That's to live consistently. So here's where Ephesians 5 is going to take us. One of the most convicting passages in the entire book of Ephesians. It is this. You and I this morning are going to need to take an inventory of what we do, what we think, what we look at, What we say, what we watch and ask this question, am I flooding my mind and my heart and my life with the light? Or am I walking around in the darkness? We live in a dark world, right? Where where immorality and darkness are always calling. And of course, Paul's going to say, why would you go back in that darkness? I think many of us know that darkness can be very, very interesting and appealing, can't it? Because when our hearts begin to be discontent with who God is and what he has given to us, we begin to covet things he has not given. And the darkness of our world calls out and says, you can find something better in the cave. So we're going to take an inventory this morning. All right, this was a deeply convicting passage for me as I looked at it this week. I didn't always like this passage. I prefer to preach about things that only you struggle with and not me. Right, but the reality is Paul is going to say, you have moved from darkness to light. So walk in the light. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, just the first couple of verses as we begin. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant 
aroma. All right, the first thing that Paul tells us in this passage is this, that Christ's love is the light in which we want to walk. All right, Christ's love is the light. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? Just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, we all know what it is to imitate somebody. When you were a kid, you probably tried to imitate your parents. Maybe you had some celebrity you looked up to that you wanted to dress like that person or talk like that person. Some of us have seen Elvis impersonators, right? And what does an Elvis impersonator do? Well, they look at what Elvis looks like. They imitate his voice. They imitate his movements. They try to sound like him, to be like him. I read an interview this week with a man named Sean Clush. He is known as the world's greatest Elvis impersonator. He's won many contests around the world. Sean Clush says this about impersonating Elvis. He says, there's a connection with him. I wish you could step outside of yourself and inside of me to feel it. Maybe you can explain it. I can't. It's everything you've ever expected and it's nothing you'd ever expect. Now, I realize that's all very weird what he just said. But let me keep going. He says, I stay as true to the original as I can. It needs to be what he is and who he was. The original guitars, the boots, the suits. San Remo boots aren't made anymore. You can't find them. I took a pair to the bootmaker and I said, can you replicate these in my size? And he said, yeah, no problem. Five grand. That's what sets us apart. You got to think nobody's going to spend five grand on a pair of boots that don't mean anything today. But our show is that way. The guitars, I play nothing but Gibsons. They're four or five grand a piece. It's very difficult to walk in someone else's shoes. It's hard to live up to an image, to be somebody else. Breath, you know, it's hard to take their breath. Now, Despite the fact that that's a little odd to spend your entire life impersonating Elvis, I love reading that quote because of what he's saying at the heart of it. If I want to be like Elvis, I've got to imitate everything Elvis did. The same guitars, the same clothes, the same hair, the same voice, the same show. We want you to walk in and experience Elvis Presley. And he even goes further. And it sounds almost spiritual in the way he describes it. I have an internal connection with Elvis. I breathe him in and experience what it's like to be him. That's imitation. That's what Paul says about how we are to approach our walk with Jesus Christ. He says, you look at Jesus and you say, I want to be like Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, what do you do? You breathe, right? Spirit in Greek means breath or wind. You breathe the breath of God and you say inside and outside, I want to look like, think like, be like Jesus. And then the illustration that Paul gives for being like Jesus is he says to be like Jesus is to love as Jesus loved. And where he starts is he says, look, if you want to be like Jesus, what you first and foremost need to look at is that Jesus died for you. Jesus sacrificed himself for you. And so he says, you walk in that love. And later in the passage, he's going to switch the analogy and say, you walk in light. And the idea is that the love of Jesus is that light. Right? That's the standard we're imitating. So the place that we begin is we say, if I want to be like Jesus, I look at what Jesus did. What's the greatest act of love in all of human history? Well, Jesus gave himself on our behalf. He died for our sin and he rose again. And Paul says, if you believe in that, you have eternal life. And then if you believe in that, you keep coming back to that. Now, why is that? Why do you keep coming back to the gospel? Here's why. Because as we reflect upon the self-sacrificing nature of what Jesus has done, 
that is going to leave no room for the darkness. And the reason is this, because Jesus loves other people. So Jesus would never use other people for his own gratification, right? Jesus would never utilize other people for his own needs. He would never covet what you have. You know why? Because he has given you everything he has. Everything you and I have comes from Jesus. So Jesus doesn't take from people. Jesus doesn't use people. Jesus doesn't hate people. Jesus always loves, right? And so Paul's going to say, if you want to walk in the light, you first and foremost look at Jesus Christ. That's the standard. So then in John chapter 13, Jesus says this, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Down in verse 8 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Right? That's who Jesus is. He's always good. He always does what is right. He always tells the truth. And so the first thing Paul says is, look, if you want to walk in the light and stay away from sin, what you need to do is where you start is you don't start by saying, you know what? I watch the wrong shows. I do the wrong things. I have a problem with alcohol or sexual immorality. I need to eradicate that. That's not where he says to start. He actually says where you start is you look at the light. And you say, I want to walk in the light. If I love other people like Jesus loves other people, I will not try to escape other people through substances. I will not try to use other people through sexual immorality. No, I will sacrifice my needs and desires for others to reflect Jesus Christ. So Paul's going to say, walk in the light of Christ's love. Right? We absorb the light. We read about Jesus. We study what he said. We study what he did. And we say, I want to be like Jesus. So the love of Christ is the light. Now he's going to go on. He's going to say sin is the darkness. Sin is the darkness. Look at verses three, and we're going to read a number of verses here, starting in verse three. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. That word, that coarse jesting, by the way, has the idea of cutting sarcasm. It's humor that's designed to cut down, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul says this, You run away from the darkness. When you're in the dark, you can't see right. right? You can't see properly. When I was a kid, I used to periodically think it was funny in my house to turn off all the lights so that nobody else in my family could see. Right, so I would run through the house, especially when my parents were gone and it was just me and my brothers. 
And to irritate my older brother, who was the babysitter, I'd turn off all the lights so he couldn't see. But then I'd usually realize what? I couldn't see either. I had created a situation in which I thought it would be fun to run around in the dark because it would scare him. But in reality, it scared me. I couldn't see. More than once in the dark, I've broken toes because I can't see the furniture. You can't see in the dark. What Paul is getting at is this. If you walk in the dark, you can't see the light of Jesus Christ. First John chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What Paul says is this, sin is not fitting, right? It's not appropriate for those who know Jesus Christ. Now he's not saying, and I want to be clear, we said this at the beginning, what he's not saying when he says, look, no immoral or impure or covetous person has an inheritance. He's not saying this, that Christians can never sin, right? He's not saying if you're really a Christian, you're never going to sin. Nor is he saying in order to be a Christian, you have to adhere to some standard of morality to earn eternal life. What he's saying is this, because you're a Christian, You do not any longer want to walk like those who are not, right? The wrath of God comes upon the world because of its sin. That's Romans chapter 1. The reason we were in judgment, the reason we were in darkness, the reason we were headed for hell is because we were people who had no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Immoral, impure, covetous people. Paul will say later on in 1 Corinthians He's going to say, that's who you were, right? You were those types of people who were immoral sexually. You were impure with your heart and your mind and your body. You were covetous. You wanted what God didn't give. He says, that's not who you are. So he says, walk in the light. Don't bring the filth into the home that God created in your heart. Don't bring the dirt and filth in there. I was remembering this week that when I was a freshman in college, I lived in a dorm on the south side of campus in the commons. And next to our dorm, there was a giant field. I don't know if it's still a field. I haven't been there in a while, but it was a giant field. And when it rained, the field would get muddy, right? It was just grass and dirt. And it would get so muddy that if you were dressed like most of us are today, you didn't want to walk through that field. You would get very, very muddy. Right? But one afternoon it rained. And then after the rain, a group of us decided to go and play mud football, right? Because we thought it would be a blast. And it was. We slid in the mud and we played in the mud and we played tackle football in the mud. And we finished that game and we were covered in filth. And it was a blast for a bunch of college guys. But then we made an error, and that is we walked back into our dorm, 20 or 30 of us, covered in mud, and we stomped through the common area. We put our hands on the walls and the furniture. We marched up the stairs. We marched into our own hallway and our own homes, and we left a trail of dirt and filth all the way through the dorm. And when the RA saw what we had done, he called an angry meeting. And I remember him going, why would you do such a thing? You live here. Why would you do this to your home? Why would you go out there and bring the mud and the filth and bring it in where you live? Not to mention all the other people who live here that you didn't think about. So we had to scrub it all up. We had to clean it. 
Right? Paul says when you go out and you seek immorality and filth, that's what you're doing. Through Jesus Christ, our hearts have been cleansed. Through Jesus Christ, we are created. Paul said it in Ephesians. We're created to be a new and holy community. And so here's what we do is we go out into a world of sin and we absorb the darkness and the sin and we engage in, in sin and sexual immorality and drunkenness or whatever it may be. And then we bring it into our house. Paul says, don't do that. Why would you do that? Right, but here's where the rubber meets the road. As Paul talks about these sins, it's not just don't do them. It's don't even talk about them. Don't even think about them. Immorality and impurity should be so far from our minds that what is done in secret, we don't stand around and talk about it. We don't look at a screen and go, that's entertaining. He says it's shameful to even name it. Right, the words that he uses here, uh, verse 3, immorality. This is the Greek word porneia. It's the word from which we get the English word pornography, right? But in the Greek language, it's a broader word than that that refers to all kinds of sexual immorality. So adultery or homosexuality or prostitution or fornication, all of these things tend to be packed into this word porneia. He says immorality, impurity, that's just general uh, moral impurity or greed, or, or covetousness. The idea is that at the root of sexual immorality is this attitude that says, God has not given me enough. Right? I want a spouse. I don't have a spouse. So I will step outside the boundaries of God's morality to find some sort of sexual gratification somewhere else. Or God has not given me enough within my marriage, so I will step out either in, either in thought or eye or deed, right? That's the idea, is this covetousness. And the 10th commandment is certainly what Paul has in mind. It says, do not covet your neighbor's wife or really anything that belongs to your neighbor. The idea is, as soon as I begin to get discontent and I say, I am no longer looking at the light, but I am now looking at what I don't have. That's where greed starts. That's where sin starts. And he says, we don't do these things. And then he goes on, he says, they must not even be named among you. It's not proper. It's not appropriate. There must be no filthiness and silly talk. Don't talk about it. No coarse jesting. Those things are not fitting. But rather giving of thanks. Paul's going to go on in a minute and say, not only do we not do those things or think about those things, but we, we expose them. Right? When we see those tendencies in our hearts and in our congregation, we shine the light and that's why he ends this little section by saying, Awake, O sleeper, arise, and the light of Christ will shine on you. What the Spirit of God does is he shines into those dark corners and he says, there's a thought, there's an attitude, there's an action that must die by the light of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. All right, as I said, this has been very, very convicting for me personally as I've studied it. Because the question that I think we all have to ask ourselves is, do we flood our minds and our hearts Monday through Sunday with the light of Jesus Christ? Or do we say, a little darkness is okay. A little sin, a little step into the cave. It's all right. 
right? Because our culture is always calling us toward the darkness, right? It's insidious. I remember when I was uh, a teenager, I think, my brothers and I were watching a TV show, and it was a sketch comedy show, some kind of Saturday Night Live type of thing, whatever it was. And uh, as we watched the show, there was a sketch that began to portray a particularly vile sort of sexual immorality. But it was, it was portrayed for laughs. It was, it was funny. And we were watching this, and they drew you into this sketch, and we began to laugh. And of course, right at that moment was when my dad walked in. Right, My dad had a knack for walking in at the worst part of any show. We could be watching Andy Griffith and dad would walk in the one inappropriate comment and go, I don't know about that Andy Griffith, right? So dad walks in and he says, what are you watching? And we go, uh, it was okay a minute ago. I don't know, right? And he says, turn it off. He says, boys, I I want y'all to think about something. He goes, they got you to laugh at something terribly immoral. That's what our culture does. You begin to laugh, and then you begin to think, ah, it's not that bad. And then you're tempted to dive in. When I was in college, I remember the show Friends was considered kind of racy and cutting edge. Right, and now it's considered cute and quaint. I mean, man, how we continue to push what's acceptable. All right, so I read this passage this week and I thought, I don't really, can we skip to the next passage? All right, because this is, it's deeply convicting. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but in the last few weeks, most of us, if you're following the news, you've seen the dark underbelly of a culture in Hollywood that has for decades promoted sex and violence and sexual violence and all kinds of supposed liberation from the boundaries that God set in place for the people of God. And what we're seeing is that behind the scenes, the filth isn't just on the screen, it's lived out tragically in the lives of people who are being destroyed by it. And so Paul says, don't even entertain those thoughts but expose them. It says, don't be deceived because this is the type of sin that results in the wrath of God. Uh, Ben Stewart, uh, about a month or so ago, released this book on uh, dating and marriage and sex. And I was reading portions of it this week. And he talks about what our culture does with sexuality and sexual immorality. He says, growing up, I heard arguments that maintain that when we loosen sexuality, From its repressive religious boundaries, we will enter an age of unprecedented enjoyment and freedom. But joy and freedom are not what I have encountered as I have counseled young people through the last two decades. And I I would agree, I've seen the same thing. He says, rather I have found that hypersexualization has hurt us. It damages children. It divides marriage. He says, the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reports that 56% of their divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in online pornography. 56%. It disrupts courtship. One research study among first-year college students discovered that regular use of pornography led young people to presume sexual exclusivity is unrealistic 
and to hold cynical attitudes about love, affection, and marriage. See what he's getting at. When we fill our minds with the filth, it changes how we treat each other. Right? And Paul knew, Paul knew in the first century, you know why? Because the culture at Ephesus was not that much different from ours. All we have really done is digitized the things that people have sinned, the sins people have committed for centuries. There is no victimless sin. So Paul says, you look at the light of Jesus and you run away, you run away from the darkness. All right, so let's do this this morning. And we're going to do this in a few minutes when we close too. All right, if sin is the darkness, take an inventory of your heart, of your mind. Let the light of Jesus Christ shine into those dark corners. It's scary to do, isn't it? Because there may be a show that you're watching that all your friends are watching and you're halfway through the best season and you may have to stop. Or a book you're reading or conversations you're used to having that you say, if I'm going to reflect the light of Jesus Christ, it's got to stop. Right? It may be even more egregious in your own mind and heart, you may have moved from just thinking and wishing to acting. So it may be that this morning, there there is ongoing sin in your life. Perhaps you have stepped outside of your marriage or you are unmarried and engaged in immorality and impurity. And it's time to shine the light. And we come to Jesus for forgiveness because the scripture says if we know him, we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is for the believer in Jesus Christ, there's not a point at which you can't turn around and say, God, shine the light. Shine the light in those dark corners. And I've had to do that this week as I think about the things we watch, the things we read, the things we engage with and recognize that I want to constantly be in the light. So Christ's love is the light, sin is the darkness. And then as Paul closes out this passage, I love this. He says, praise is the light switch. Look at verses 15 to 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's what he says. Ultimately, the antidote to sin and darkness is that you flood your mind, your heart with praise so that it comes out of your mouth and into your actions. I wish I had more time this morning to delve into these last seven verses because we could have an entire sermon about verses 50 to 21. But I love how Paul starts it. He says, be careful, literally walk with care. I don't know how many of you have kids right now that are in a Lego phase. Uh, My son is in a Lego phase. 
And on any given day, his room, his floor may be covered with Legos. So if I walk into his room, especially at night, I need to walk out with care, right? I have broken bones before, but the pain of stepping on a Lego with a barefoot in the dark rivals the worst pain I've ever experienced. It shoots into your brain, right? It stabs you in the soul. It's painful. So what do I do? Because the dark room is littered with Legos. I walk with care. That's what Paul says. Our dark world is littered with a minefield of sin. So he says, you walk carefully. And then he's going to say, look, don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because when I am drunk with wine, if I drink too much alcohol or I ingest too much of a substance that changes my mood and my way of thinking, then I cannot walk with care. Right? That's the issue with alcohol is too much alcohol lowers one's inhibitions and controls the person. And Paul's idea here is you need instead to be controlled by the Spirit. And you can't be controlled by the Spirit when you're controlled by a substance. You can't walk with care when you have drunk too much. He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. And what are you going to do? You're going to sing. Sing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? So when those attitudes of discontent When the temptation toward morality comes, I think Paul quite literally would say, why don't you open up your mouth and you sing the greatness of God. You praise him together, right? There's a reason we come in here and we spend the first few minutes of our time singing, right? Christians have always done this. And if you've not been to church a lot, it feels a little weird at first. To walk into a room where not only are we listening to the songs, we are singing. And the idea is we are singing to one another about the character of God and the love of Jesus Christ and the light of Jesus Christ. Because by flooding our minds and hearts with the truth in song, we're not leaving any room for the darkness. So he says, you talk to one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The only antidote to the darkness is to flood yourself with light. I read an article this week by the musician Jimmy Needham. And he, he, in this article, talks about as a young man, when he trusted Christ, the struggle that he had to overcome pornography and sexual immorality in his own life. And he quoted in this article, 2 Timothy 2, 22, that is, uh, flee from youthful lusts. And then he says, look at the second part of the verse, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It says, many Christians, myself included, keep the first part of the verse, flee youthful passions. But we forget that Paul never had in mind for us merely to flee from sin. Real freedom came for me when I began by God's grace to see that my cravings were for more than just food or sex. All my appetites were at root for an all-satisfying God. God will always be the better treasure, the more pleasing song. C.S. Lewis, many years ago, put it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The antidote to the darkness is to flood yourself with the light. You turn on that light switch of praise and thanksgiving. Paul says, always give thanks in all things. When I'm thankful for what God has given, I have no room for covetousness. I have no room for immorality. Right, so what do we want to do? As I mentioned, take an inventory this morning. My sense is that all of us will look at our lives, all of us, and say there are things that need to change. And what am I dwelling on? What am I looking at? What am I talking about? What am I doing with my body? And then flood our mind with the light of praise. Just this past week, we were, I was in the car taking a couple of my kids to school, and it had been one of those mornings. It was a rough morning. Grumpy people, right? And not just the children, the grown-ups. And as we drove to school, we've got this CD. It's this Seeds of Praise series. And we, we've got these, and we hadn't listened to them in a while, but there was one song that came into my mind from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, right? About giving thanks always and rejoicing in all things. Right? So I turned it on, the song, in the car. And the kids go, ah, right? Peril of being a pastor's kid. And I turned it up and they said, dad, too loud. It's too loud. And I said, but it has to be loud enough to drown out the ungrateful voices in our minds. Right? And when we drive out those voices, me included, we'll turn it off. And we listen to it all the way to school. And that's what Paul says. You flood your mind and heart with praise. So that's how we're going to close this morning. As Josh comes back up, we're going to sing a song of praise to remember the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And as you sing and as you praise God, allow the light of Jesus Christ to shine into those dark corners, to expose the darkness, to eradicate it so that we can be ambassadors of Jesus Christ like we are called to be. Let me pray for us and then we'll close in worship. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so deeply convicting and so powerful, truly sharper than a two-edged sword. So humble us and convict us that our minds and our hearts and our actions and attitudes would please you. We thank you, Father, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.